Hey, everyone. Welcome to our sixth episode of Revenue on the Rocks. So I've been promising this for weeks, but it's actually happening. Really did. We have our first guest. And I could not be more excited because I love his content, the brand he's created, everything, but not going to go into who it is just yet. But for today's topic, the person is a product marketer. So we want to talk about something product marketing related. And I think something that every product marketer, marketer can relate to and just is so frustrated by, I know I have been, is sales content. So, you know, testimonials, blog posts, one pagers, I hate PDF and one pagers, all that. And we're going to talk about on marketing, why we get the requests, why they're so frustrating. And on sales end, you know, why we give them out and then why sometimes sale reps go rogue and create their own. But before we dive in, before we tell you who it is, Ben, what you drinking today? It is a fun answer. Natalie, I am drinking a, a Coors Light, but the part that makes it fun is I'm drinking it out of our little surf hut glass. Uh, so last week we were in Destin, Florida as a team at an offsite. And on one of the nights we walked down the beach to this little hole in the wall place called the surf hut. And if you ordered a margarita from there, they gave you a to-go glass. Uh, so we were able to not only have a margarita at the restaurant, but we were also able to have one walking back. Uh, some enjoyed them more than others, I would say. But either way, we got the glass. To give away who our guest is, Mark, what are you drinking today? I'm not drinking a to-go margarita right now, although that's a pretty amazing concept. I've got a little bourbon with me here uh, from Rowan's Creek, if you've ever done uh, the bourbon trail in Louisville area. I highly recommend it. It's really cool. So we're drinking bad beer out of a very um, inexpensive glass. Glad to hear you're classing up the podcast, Mark. Uh, no, you guys have a much better story than I do. So I think I'm more of a fan of Surf Hut than you guys might realize. First, I was like, oh, shoot, are we going to have to ship Mark a Surf Hut glass? Like, is it going to be rude if we're drinking out of them? And he's not. But we didn't have time to get that, unfortunately. Yeah. And I did check their website. They don't have a merch store, so I can't buy one. But if they did, I, I might. And in case you couldn't figure it out by the voice, guest today is Mark Huber. So like I said, I'm really excited. Mark, I think we've known each other for about like six months now. It feels longer, but in the best way. And uh, yeah, I've been a fan of what you all have been doing and super excited to be on here. Like actually, I you know people who come on podcasts tend to say that, but if the kind of pre-recording was any indication of this, this should be a fun one. But if you don't know Mark, um, he is the head of brand and product marketing at Metadata. Granted, like I said, everyone probably knows that, but super excited because of the brand you built, Metadata, and also think Metadata is like renowned for your product marketing, for your branding, for all the content you put out. So I think this will be a fun one hearing like not just the frustrations of content, but then how does a top team do content? It's a lot to live up to, but I'll try. And I guess to dive in there, just Mark, what is your typical relationship with sales bit and what are some highlights and maybe uh, lowlights in the past? Sounds like a start of a therapy session. So I would say low lights in the past. Oftentimes it just feels like two different teams going at different goals and never really on the same page. And I think we'll unpack what exactly that means. But a lot of finger pointing, a lot of different incentives, you know, some teams celebrating while the other didn't really meet their goal. And it just leads to a not so healthy relationship. And thankfully, that is completely unlike anything that I've had to experience at Metadata. And it's probably the best relationship that I've ever had with a sales team. And uh, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about why here. Awesome. Glad we ended on a good note there. But Ben, to kick us off, to defend sales, you know, why do sales reps constantly ask for content? And better yet, like, why do reps go rogue and just create their own content? So when I was thinking about this, 
question, I think it's important to preface that there are really two types of reps. It's a 50-50 split. The types of reps that really love content and want it and need it and use it. Honestly, reps who are like, no, I'm good. I don't really use it a whole, t- a, a whole lot in a ton. We have a few reps here at Nevadic who are very reliant or get excited about new content. And then truthfully, there are reps kind of like myself that don't maybe use it as much and, and only use it when it's specifically asked for by the prospect. So I did want to clarify that not all sales reps use content really falls under like two categories. And I would equate it to the way marketers think about gating versus ungating, right? Like half of you love it, half of you hate it. All good. It's the same way. Like when you hire a sales rep, like the joke in sales is, is that the kind of sales rep that loves using like a deck, for example, or is that type of sales rep who would never use a deck? So that's, I think, kind of generally how uh, the sales team can be split between who uses content and who doesn't. What I will say, generally speaking, is reps are excited about content because we're super competitive. All of our deals typically are very competitive and we don't want to be that one company, that vendor who, when a prospect says, Hey, I'm looking at three different companies. Like, can you send me X, Y, Z? It will be helpful for me to build this business case. You don't want to have to be that company who's like, well, I don't have that. And like, oh shoot, maybe now the other competitors are sending that. Reps want to be like the Walgreens. Prospects walk in, anything they need, we have it. We've got it ready to roll and we can fire it over to you. We don't want to kind of sort of caught being like empty handed. So Ben, I think I tend to agree with you on that. The reality, though, is if you take the 50-50 split of the 50% of reps who actually use content, I find that most of the requests actually come from the other 50% who say that they don't really use it. And those are the requests that are coming on a one-off basis. You tend to get a lot of them. They tend to often ask, you know, hey, I need this thing. And they tell you the medium that they need first. And I like to wait and see, do we actually need what you're talking about? And let marketing kind of pick the medium that we think is best to solve for whatever they're asking about. Not, you know, give me a webinar on this. Give me a blog post on this. Give me a deck on this. Because then you just feel like you're a little deck or collateral monkey at the end of the day and you can't get off the wheel. It's funny, Mark, that you brought up medium because that was going to be my first comment on this is that I don't think it's so annoying that reps want content because like ultimately our job as marketers is to create content. I agree that I get so much more frustrated. It's like, hey, why don't we have a webinar on this? And like, well, we have a blog post and we have a one pager. Like, why do we also need a webinar? And just, I think in general with marketing, people always ask channel first or medium first, not strategy first or reason first. And Ben has to deal with me saying this all the time. He'll be like, why don't we do this? I'm like, I like the thought behind it. I like the concept. Why specifically that? So I'm wondering, Ben, like why, why do sales reps like instantly just think this medium or this medium? Well, I would actually pose the question back to you a little bit. Why are marketers so adverse to maybe some of those one-off content ideas? Is it because generally speaking, when marketers think about content, your, your thought perhaps immediately goes to how can I make content for as many teams, use cases, initiatives as I can versus, oh, sales needs this. Maybe it won't help post-sales. Maybe it won't help lead gen a whole lot, but my sales team really needs this. Is that why maybe there is some pushback when we come to you specifically with like one very niche item we need? So I think for me, it really depends on why it's being asked for. So perfect example, if it is a sizable deal and we don't have it and it really can help, I will listen to those one-off requests at the end, like 10 times out of 10. If it is not a sizable opportunity and it's a random, you know, I heard this one time and I think it might help, I being the sales rep, then I kind of get a little 
defensive of, all right, well, what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve for? Is a blog post the best way to solve for that? Maybe it's something else. It's usually, a, I think, webinar is what really triggers me because, sorry, Ben, but most salespeople don't realize how big of a lift it takes to actually put on a good webinar. So I, I get triggered when I hear, oh, yeah, let's do a webinar on this. Like, let's just pull one off the shelf and do it. It's like, no, we're a small marketing team. You can't do that with endless resources. I also think just to play devil's advocate against the sales team and jump on the marketing uh, side for a second here. I do think it's really important for heads of sales, leaders in the sales community to be a little bit of a filter for this, right? Reps will take this shit and run with it if you let them. Like if they ask for something one off two or three times in a row and you deliver on it two or three times in a row, guess what? They're just going to keep asking. And so it is up to the head of sales to say, you know, hey, Natalie, that's a great idea. You're right. We don't have that one pager today. Is this something that you know, the other team members have experience. Is this going to be able to help more people than just you? Or does the deal size warrant us spending time on this? This probably is a good transition, which we can press pause on for now on, on why reps maybe go rogue and build things on their own if the answer is no. Um, but I do think it is important for, for sales leaders to be a little bit of a filter and not just let your sales team to make demands left. I love that because that's exactly how we work with our sales team at Metadata. At the top, they act as really the filter of we've heard this enough times or yes, I think this is something that is a gap for us today and we need to fill it. And then I know it's been vetted a little bit and I'll act on it. But if it's just some random salesperson who doesn't really know if they need this or not, asking a limited marketing team for content, can't just keep yourself on that hamster wheel. Mark and Ben, I want to ask, do you have any sort of like system in place for keeping track of requests or have you ever in past companies had a really good like organization structure? Because I think half the time people ask for content, they just don't know it exists. Like what have you seen work really well to make sure that people know where to go or how to prioritize? So I have my own thoughts, but Ben, I want to hear the salesperson's perspective first and then I'll tell you what I've done before. Yeah, pretty quick answer for me. The answer is no, don't have a great process uh, in how we do this today. That's the answer I was expecting, by the way. Yeah, N not a whole lot there. So Mark, happy to kick it over to you. So I think there's been a couple different times where I've seen this work somewhat well to maybe decently well. And most of the time it works really poorly. So what we've done at Metadata and it goes through, I would say phases of being really, really organized and on top of it to, hey, we're kind of slacking a little bit in keeping the organization because of all of these other things. But what we would do is we would load up Airtable with all of the links to helpful content. We're really not big enough to have a true sales enablement tool just yet. And we would group the content types, uh, or sorry, the pieces of content by type, by uh, use case or pain point. We'd have a link to that content. And then we'd have a little column that would just give like a quick description of this is what it's for and this is who most likely will need it. That has worked really well. And I think oftentimes when you just publish something and announce it on a Slack channel or an email and, and that's it. It does not work well. We have our own Slack channel at Metadata specifically for this. So we'll do a, a Slack and an email and then a mention or two at our weekly revenue meeting across sales, marketing, and CS. And we'll share the link, but then we'll also do, you know, hey, salespeople, if you're too lazy to actually read this thing, these are the top three points that we want you to take away from this. And then here's our own take on why we created this piece of content. So you can kind of give them talking points without forcing them to read the entire thing by themselves, because let's be real, like you don't have time to do that for every single piece of content marketing creates. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. One thing I'm going to say, and I don't want either of you to, to be offended by this whatsoever, but for, for marketers generally, what I, what I would also say is if you find yourself in a scenario where your sales team is asking you nonstop for different items and different content, different ideas, there's a chance that maybe your sales team is saying that because they feel like the content you're creating is missing the mark pretty big. I mean, you're, you're right. I'm not going to disagree with you. You're right. Yeah. So we get fewer requests because of that. And that's why we wait for the request to kind of be vetted. But I completely agree with what you're saying. hundred percent. And I think that's why oftentimes, sometimes, you know, sales reps can go a little bit rogue. I know I've worked at organizations where I felt that like the marketing content really did miss the mark. So it was like, screw it. I'm just going to hop into Notion or into whatever it may be and, and build kind of my own material as needed. So Ben, let's, get a horror story from you. What's the worst time that you've gone rogue with creating content and like really triggered your marketing team? Hopefully it's not Natalie at Nevada. I would say just generally, anytime I create anything, I'm pretty bad from like a creative perspective. I do not build things aesthetically pleasing, but I've put together some pretty horrendous like pricing decks. Um, so thankfully I've since started working with Natalie and she helps me out a lot. I'm getting secondhand PTSD because of all the things you create, you're creating pricing, but I guess that's your neck that's on the line when it comes to the contract you're putting in front of them. I've seen those. Like when, Mark, when you asked that question, I was thinking like it's the worst content I've seen. And I, I do think it's decks. I don't know why, but like suddenly it feels like we're making a deck from the fifth grade where there's no unified theme. There's no branding. Like sometimes there's maybe like a clip art in there and you're like, where, where did that come from? That is not on brand. Um, and I feel like it often is those later stage funnel materials like pricing decks because marketing doesn't always think to make that. It like really is beyond them. We're selling to marketers. So then why does it matter when you create that one-off rogue piece of content? Because marketers are judging our brand throughout. And when they see that like random unformatted Google or Google Slides with a table that doesn't even have a different colored like header, like everything's the same font and not our font, they're going to notice that. And it kind of like takes away a little bit in their mind of our brand. So- for me, this is where I've kind of changed my stance on it. So what we do at Metadata is we have a, we call it a slide garden, but it's probably somewhere in the range of, let's say 50 or so slides that are all approved from product marketing. And mm. we would never, ever, ever recommend that anyone at Metadata, sales or CS, use all 50 slides. But the point is you give your teams pre-approved slides that they can then make their own puzzle, depending on the use case and the conversation that they're having. Now that works significantly better than telling your sales team, at least for us, Hey, these are the 10 or 12 slides that you have to use every single time. They feel like they have a little bit more control over the content that they're creating. It doesn't completely eliminate salespeople at metadata creating their own stuff, but we know that by the mere fact that they're using the slide garden and then they create an additional slide and guess what? They've tested it out a handful of times. They'll come back to us and say, hey, you know what? We actually need this slide. Can you create it and add it to the slide garden? And that way, it's kind of a controlled way for them to test things that still make me a little upset when I see the visual and the gong recording, but I know they're they're playing within the guardrails. I love that. And I just finished my drinks. This is a really good time to talk about this. Can I talk about why I don't like content? Sales leaders, don't let content become a crutch for your sales reps. And what I mean by that is, Mark, the example you just stated, which is Natalie comes to me, she's a rep on my team, and she has a very competitive deal. And she says, hey, Ben, I need a one-pager around why Nevada is better than this competitor. My first reaction is, why the hell do you need a one-pager? Were we unable on the call to handle those objections? Are you like that 
out of touch with the differences from a product perspective, whatever those things may be. Why are we leaning on a one pager to make that point? And also, by the way, if we are leaning on a one pager to make that point, we're probably going to lose the deal because it's going to be less influential than the conversation we can have on a discovery call, which is why you're in sales anyway. So don't let it be a crutch. If someone's like, I need a one pager on, on this specific feature. It's like, wait, do you not know how to explain that feature? Do you not understand that feature? Why do you need a one pager on it? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> like it's so spot on. It's you just don't know what you're not trying to throw shade, but like you don't really know what you're selling from a product perspective well enough that you then need to use the content as a crutch. I can probably count on definitely one hand, maybe a couple fingers, how many times I've ever looked at a one pager that a sales rep has sent me. I'm curious, Mark, your perspective on this too, about going back to like competitor one pagers or competitor landing pages, because I'm very kind of anti-competitor comparison pages, landing pages, because I'm not saying they don't always work, but in today's day and age, at least our market moves so like people are always coming out with new features, new positioning, new this. So they're often outdated. Coming from an SEO background, all of my SEOers are like, what do you mean you don't have comparison pages? You're losing out on ranking there. So wonder where you're at, pro or anti-comparison pages. So I would say that I used to be against comparison pages and I've changed how I feel about them quite a bit since being at Metadata. And here's why. I think a lot of what you mentioned still holds true. We make sure that we've got one like real comparison page externally. We've got a ton of internal battle cards, but we make it like a conscious effort to actually update them probably quarterly. If we're being honest with ourselves, would we like to do it earlier than that? Probably, but we've got, you know, not endless resources. Um, so why I like the comparison page is one, always take the high road. It comes off so much better in the eyes of the prospect, if you are actually shouting out whatever that direct competitor is good at, because let's be real, they wouldn't be in business if they weren't good at something. So I think if you shout out what they're good at and recognize that, that already makes your your comparison page a little bit more believable. And then two, if you don't have that comparison page with an accurate take of how your company sits in a particular space and how the other competitor sits, you're then leaving it up to that competitor to control the narrative. So I think what we are trying to do is control the narrative. There's a lot of bad product marketing out there. I would argue that most product marketing is bad at the end of the day. And especially in the MarTech world, there's so much bad product marketing that you got to control the narrative so that your competitor is not saying that, you know, you don't do something when guess what? You actually do do it at the end of the day. If I could jump in really quick on that, I, Mark, would say I'm still kind of on the fence about like competitor one pagers and, and comparing. In my opinion, I think the most influential content you can provide is any third party stuff. So like, hey, check out the G2 reviews on Nevadic versus XYZ or Trust Radius, or here's a blog that was written by a objective third party around some of the differences between us and them. To me, that's way more influential than here's a one pager we put together around how we're different or better. One of our competitors actually does that publicly on their website. And it's all incorrect and it's so disingenuous and it's awful for their brand. And it's so funny because people will get on calls and they'll say, hey, I saw on XYZ's website, you know, you guys don't have X, Y, and Z. And then two minutes later, we show them we have all of that. And it just like immediately makes that brand look so disingenuous. So anything that comes from another person that doesn't work at your company about your product is going to be so much more believable at the end of the day. So I'm not here to argue that. I think for the comparison page, and we can talk about it here. We actually just talked about it on Demand Gen U this week, was our metadata versus six cents comparison page. Some of our best customers are 
mutual Sixth Sense and metadata customers. So what we tried to do is we said on this landing page, hey, I know that the market shows that we are the same. What we're actually trying to tell you is that we're not the same. This is what Sixth Sense is really good at. We don't play in that space, which is intent data. They've got great intent data. What we can do, though, is help you activate that intent data. And then the social proof that we had on the page was very, very specific to how B2B marketers and mutual customers think of both tools differently. So it kind of combines all of that into one page with social proof plus our narrative. But yeah, anything that comes up from, you know, a customer or you hear in a community or you see on LinkedIn, like people are going to believe that that much more. Mark, what content is your sales team using the most? So I would say, and it's funny that you asked that, two things. The first thing that they use the most is our G2 profile because it's not coming from any of us. And of course, if we're going to send you testimonials, they're going to be the best testimonials from a handpicked group of customers that will not say a single bad thing about us. But wouldn't you want to see what all customers are saying on G2? So I would say that's the the first thing. And then the second thing that they use the most is really how you can move from, let's say, the old way of doing marketing to the new way of doing marketing. And you know that could be a a podcast episode in itself when I have my surf, uh, whatever that place is called, cup. Uh, but it's more educational in nature. And then in the background, oh yeah, metadata can help you do this new way of marketing, but we're really trying to teach and lead with value whether or not they pick metadata at the end of the day. I love it. You sort of failed because I was waiting for you to say interactive demos, but still B plus. Well, so I, no, let's let, no, 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 no. Let's keep this in here because they got worried at first. They were like, you're putting a product tour on the site. This thing is awesome. I'm going to be out of a job. And they got like a little ruffled at first, but then once they click through it, they're like, wow, this is really badass." And like, at the end of the day, I would say the goal of product marketing is twofold. It's one, to weed out the wrong people and two, to attract the right people. And if your product tour is a good product tour and it weeds out the wrong people, job well done. We're not trying to waste your sales team's time. 100%. I love that. Sounds like I'm clipping this. This is my new piece of content that I'm using on every sales call. I'm good. I can sign off now. That's all I really <laughs> needed to hear. I just thought of that too. That was completely off the cuff. Um, it's funny because I was going to ask about like, Ben, your exact question of what content do you use the most? And then kind of on the flip side, is there any content you've created that you're like, this is going to be great. This is going to hit the mark and then wasn't used for any particular reason? So we're, and this is like where I'm at right now. Uh, I'm in the middle of our third annual benchmark report, and we do a benchmark report using all the ad spend that's run through our platform. It is really impressive, the amount of ad spend that's run through our platform, but there are so many different, I would say, intricacies of the data and variables and unknowns and like every marketing team at every company is different. So it takes us so much effort to get this thing out. Does it look good at the end of the day? For sure. Is it different? Great. How well does it actually land and how often is it being used? Like, I can't confidently answer those last two questions. So I kind of wonder with, you know, the small team that we have, is it worth the amount of effort that goes into it? Maybe, but I don't think our sales team uses it nearly as much. So it's funny because we just released our, in January, a big report. And at first we saw some, you know, some success for them with our big announcement post, but nothing crazy. But it was almost just having the report elevated our brand and status so much more than not. Like, I don't know if so many people complimenting us. Like, I know we we do send it sometimes in sales because 
shout out to Ben. I appreciate it. You guys screenshot when customers say like, great report. But sometimes they're like, did you actually read it? Are you gaining anything from it? Or are you just happy that we have some data and something? And even, so we just hired a new CSM, super excited for her. She's awesome. And we asked her about her experience going through and buying an interactive demo because she was a customer first. And one thing she said was she thought we were much more enterprise just because we had a report, which I thought was so interesting. It was like, you might have no idea what the report said. You didn't know maybe if the data was accurate, it was accurate, but like, you don't know. But just even I think having that report kind of reinforced the prospects. Yes, this is a larger company who cares about data. So it's funny that you say that because the first year that we did it, it would have been the spring of 2021, uh, we had... So spring of 2021, but the data was the uh, full year of 2020. We had about 15 million, uh, maybe closer to 17 now that I think of it, of ad spend run through our platform. And then the year two, we had 45 million. So from our president at that point in time, Natalie, it kind of supports her point. He said, I'm paraphrasing, I don't really care if people read this. It's the mere optics of one, having it, and two, the growth in how much more ad spend has been run through our platform year over year. The optics of that do look really good, whether or not somebody actually reads it at the end of the day. Yeah. And I want to be careful. Like we're not advising, like, go make a fake report. Like, don't. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not a fake news content person. Do not do that. If you take one thing away from this, do not do that. Because I feel like my suggestion was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just put out a report and people will be impressed because uh, there will be people who will scrutinize your data and ask questions and it looks bad. But I, th I think just any sort of data, like it doesn't have to be a full report, just like a blog post, something really elevates. And at least for us, because we sell the marketers, like Ben can attest to how many times we got the question of, do you have a report on X? And now it seems much easier because we do. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I would say too is, and this is like a little tip for sales reps out there. Obviously your marketing team is going to create content that's more specifically for the pre-sales side, which you'll, you'll know about and you'll use. But what I always do is I go talk to our post-sales team and I ask them, what content really resonates with our customers, our current customers? Because if it resonates really well with them, I'm not talking about like a knowledge base or something like that, but if we have content that resonates super well with them, it's probably going to be very, very helpful and likely very different than what you're sh uh, sharing on the pre-sales side. So I like to talk to our post-sales team and understand what content they use that really seems to resonate well um, and kind of steal from that. So that was a huge content gap for us for a long time at Metadata. And I would say over the last maybe two or three months, we've really prioritized it. And I couldn't agree more, Ben. I think once you see what your existing customers need and don't have from a contact perspective, if they're the right kinds of customers, prospects are going to want and find value out of the same thing too. So we've actually, I would say, over-indexed on that for the last two or three months. Yeah, same here. That content also performs the best on us for LinkedIn, which is so interesting. It's like so bottom of the funnel content. Yeah. And my best posts are, hey, here are six ways you can use interactive demos, paid ads, list out exactly how customers are using them. Very case study-y. It's very, it's not very feature heavy, I guess. It's like very use case heavy. But I created this content thinking like, oh, this will, our sale, like our CS team will love this, but it's not going to be great pro prospects. And I get a lot of times told on LinkedIn, like, like your content because I don't have anywhere else to go for interactive demos. Well, I think for that, so we had been writing case studies, I would say, over the December, January timeframe. And we all know how case studies work. The, the actual technology vendor writes them. They get approval, making it sound as great as they possibly can from the customer. Oftentimes, they write the own testimonial for the customer, and then they approve it. So 
are you ever going to say anything bad about your actual product? No. So what we started to do then was rather than just write case studies, we started to focus more on playbooks and then what I'm calling like mm. use case studies. And you show the exact use case step-by-step step of how somebody used your actual product to accomplish whatever the outcome is. And like, yeah, it sounds like a case study at the end of the day, but it's way more tactical. It includes screenshots. It includes everything that they're willing to share. And that's the type of content that we were creating for existing customers. And the feedback that we've gotten so far from prospects is like, wow, this is amazing. You can do that with your product. Great. And if you're a small marketing team and you can create content, the same piece of content for two different teams, like you're golden. And that's gold for sales reps as well, because you don't want to be that sales rep who sends that follow-up email after the call with a bunch of generic case studies, some generic content. You want to be able to send them like two very specific use case specific, uh, verticalized, whatever that may be, content that's really going to resonate with them. Um, so I love that, Mark. That's a great idea. I might steal that. Steal it. Then we have playbooks coming out soon that will include customer videos. So we just started doing, and we're going to change it up a little bit, but customer interview series where it's like, hey, it's 15 minutes. You're going to be the star. Just talk about how you use Nevadic. I'm not going to ask you these huge revenue numbers. We have to ask all your RevOps people how you got this number. It's a small wind you got from this. Really, just why did you build it this way? What tips did you, would you give for someone else? What inspired you? And those like small tips have been such nuggets of gold. Also for sales and CS. So very similar to that, but kind of different all along the lines of content. So we did a, it was an experiment and we did an experiment in, I think it was the first two weeks of December. And what we did was I had two metadata customers do a fireside chat with me. We only invited late stage opportunities. So I think we have six stages before close one. So I think it was stages four through six and I interviewed them. We, I gave them the questions. I did not tell them what they could and couldn't say. And the whole interview or fireside chat was the good, the bad, the ugly of metadata. And I let them do all of the talking. They talked about what they loved, what they didn't really like, and what they actually can't stand. And we've then, not only was that really well received and it actually helped nudge two opportunities to close one, we repurposed that into a buyer's guide. And we're quoting actual customers giving an honest, transparent take about, you know, everything that relates to buying and using metadata. And again, the customers who are marketing the product for you, not us, it's so much more believable. Do they say things that they don't like about metadata? For sure. But I think that's why it's more believable at the end of the day, because it's not this just great sounding sales pitch of, hey, our product's the best. How do you maneuver that conversation with your post-sales team or maybe the AE who's working those? I could see that just being like a big objection, like, you no way, you, like, no, Mark, you can't go talk to that person. Yeah. So great question. And I thought they were going to feel the same way about it. And what I did was I went to one of our sales directors and said, hey, and I should have mentioned this earlier, what I like to do with creating new content with sales is a very small focus group of like three to maybe five sellers max who are really interested in helping and want to test this out. A lot of these little experiments bomb, but then you're only testing it out with a small group before you roll it out to a larger team. So I went to the sales director and said, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? He's like, okay, this sounds pretty interesting. Let me run it past my team. So he ran it past the team. The team's like, all right, Mark, tell me more. I told them more. They were like, you know what? Let's do it. Like, let's 
try it. The worst that can happen is, you know, it doesn't have any impact. I trust that you're not going to guide the the customers in a way where they're going to talk shit about the actual platform. Um, but within a matter of, I would say, probably two or three days post that webinar, and it was recorded, but it was only sent to late stage opportunities. I had three out of the five AEs slack me and say, my prospect either was not responding to me and responded back or... We were in conversations that they brought up that webinar. You can't measure all of this stuff, but those are the qualitative like pieces of feedback and leading indicators that show, all right, there's something here. Let's see how we can get more out of it. I actually watched that webinar, Mark. And I think one thing that's important to note was like when watching that, it seemed like you, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like you had a good relationship with the customers you brought on. And I think that's a really important piece to marketing if you want to do customer interview series, case studies, anything. I think we're so reliant on CS to build those relationships. By the time you do the interview with a thing, like it's kind of awkward if they're a brand new person. Make your own relationships and then those ask to customers suddenly don't rely on CS. Could not agree more. And I think the the reason why it works so well is one, everything that you said, but two, the relationships that I have with both of those customers. We have the kind of relationship where they can come to me and complain, hey, I'm not getting this right now. This is falling short. Are you looking at this because I'm not happy? And it's that constructive feedback loop that, you know, hey, you don't get to that point unless you have a good, solid relationship with them. So I think one of the things that I'm really tired of seeing on the LinkedIn echo chamber is go talk to your customers because most people don't actually do it. If you do it, you... It's a cheat code. You can find out so many things that your buyers and prospects actually care about. You just have to make it a point to talk to a few customers every single month. Because if you don't prioritize it, you're not going to do it. And last thing I'd add there is go add value to that customer. Ben knows I hop on integration calls all the time because I know HubSpot and Salesforce really well. And I build relationships there. Like I will give customers tips about interactive demos or help them build them out. Don't just be annoyed that your customers don't want to take time to talk to you. Everyone's busy. Try to offer them something of value too. So I realize we've somehow been talking for 40 minutes, which is really impressive. I think we've had some really awesome discoveries, takeaways. This was actually a lot more positive than I was expecting this episode. That 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 was my goal. I, I love our sales team at Metadata. I bash them. They bash me. But like I wanted to spin this in a positive way because... The sales marketing, you know, relationship is far too often like this, and it doesn't need to be that way. Love it. That's the whole goal of this podcast. But before we end, I do want to ask any final tips around, like, how do you just make content or sales and marketing, sales and marketing content relationship uh, better? I would say start small. Find a handful of people on the sales side who are interested in helping and testing and use them as a way to prove and disprove things. And once you find things that work, then you can roll it out on a much larger scale. I think when I was starting earlier in my career, I tried to roll things out in a grand fashion across the entire sales team and it failed miserably almost every time. Go rogue, create all your, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I think the overall, the overall takeaways I would say are again, go chat with your post sales team, pick their brain a little bit about what sort of content that they're using. And then continue to give feedback to your marketing, positive and negative. If the only relationship you have with them is make me this, do this, do this, and not thank you so much for this. This is amazing. This helped me win the deal. Um, That's going to affect the relationship. So um, give very positive feedback when the content helps you win deals. Don't just ask for things. 
appreciate that. And I'd say my final tip is if you can, again, build those relationships with customers, listen to sales calls, and then see things that come up frequently and anticipate content your sales team's going to ask for. Because if you can deliver them something before they even ask, like, it's going to blow their mind. Well, that wraps up today. Before we leave, Mark, how was it? This was fun. Uh, it was great. I'm shocked that we're already at 40 something minutes and change. Uh, we could have kept going for a while, but no, this is good. I think it was the right mix of like horror stories with helpful, actionable advice and then not ripping on each other too much. Sales and marketing should always rip on each other. It's like a big brother, little brother relationship. But as long as they're both working towards the same thing, then you're good. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, Stay tuned. We're, we're going to have more guests. So promise this would happen and let us know what you think. Bye, everyone.